0: you don't have a Bible, we'd sure like you to have a Bible and uh, in your hands as we study the Word. And there are men coming up the aisle right now. Just raise your hand and they'll spot you and get a Bible into your, your hands. On Sunday morning, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We don't want to miss anything that He taught, anything that He did. All of it is instructive for us. And so we've come this week to... A wonderful passage, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and went and plotted how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, and nor do you care about anyone. For you do not regard the person of men. In other words, Jesus was no respecter of persons. He'd tell you the truth, no matter who you were. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this on this Roman coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. And the words of Charlie Brown, they said, Rats. <laughs> Headed on out. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we realize that behind every portion of it are your thoughts and your intents. And Lord, we want the thoughts and the intents of this passage to be lifted off of the page and to be built, Lord, into our lives and into our spirits by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would open up this passage, that you would help us to understand the eternal truths that are here how they apply to our lives, Lord. And as always, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would make this passage a good friend to us for the rest of our pilgrimage here, and then, Lord, for all of eternity. Thank You for the privilege this morning of being able to build our lives and our eternities upon Your Word, which will outlive the heavens and the earth. Thank You for that foundation, Lord. Open your word up to us now, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our text, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, which was and is the religious center of the nation of Israel. And he is in the final days of his public ministry prior to his death upon the cross. The Jewish religious leaders at this time are feeling very, very threatened by Jesus' popularity among the common people. And his popularity among the common people is occurring at the expense of the popularity of the Jewish religious leaders among the common people. And so they are now actively plotting how it is that they might kill him and ultimately destroy him. In the meantime, they're willing to attack him kind of by piecemeal. And so, in this particular instance, they uh, rise up now and they are trying to create some kind of division among Jesus' followers in order to slow his popularity or to put a dent in this uh, growing excitement that people are are having concerning Him. And as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, each of the main sects of the Jews, the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, are each going to step up and try and trap Jesus publicly as He's speaking to His disciples with some kind of a trick question or something to trip Him up in His words and uh, so that they can bring an accusation against him, and this morning we want to look at the first of those attempts on the part of a group by the name of the, uh, called the Pharisees in alliance with another group known as the Herodians. In verses fifteen through seventeen, we notice their plot as they kind of plan their plot and they hatch it and in verse fifteen we 're told the motive behind their plot was to entangle him. In their speech. And so, what they've got him is in a public setting. Jesus is, fo- is ju- absolutely surrounded by his disciples, his followers. They're listening to him in an exciting, excited kind of way. And so, they're coming in, interrupting. They want to ask Jesus a question in the hopes that he'll flub somehow, that he will make a misguided statement or he'll. Uh, give a wrong answer that in some way when that large diverse crowd that is following him hears the answer that some of them will like it and others will not like it and those that don't like it then will leave from following him. They want to divide and conquer. They want to divide his his support and get his followers to have second thoughts about following him. The question in verse 17 um, is, is an interesting one. They They choose to pose a question to him that had already created great contention and division among the Jews in general. And the question is this, is it lawful, that is, is it okay according to the law of Moses, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. So they've asked him in their minds a very loaded question, and it is very much a political question. You ever want to divide a church? You want to divide the support of a religious leader? Uh, get them to take stands on non-essentials uh, in the realm of politics, and uh, you can certainly do it. So in their their mind, this is a political kind of question, and the question itself at least for their purposes. I mean, you have to admire it. It really is a masterpiece. They frame the question so as to allow Jesus only one of two answers. And He is either going to answer, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, or He is going to answer, in their minds, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, the reason that the question is so potentially explosive is that if He says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes unto Caesar, then the Jewish religious leaders would be able to rise up and paint him as kind of a disloyal Jew, as a uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, not being a a true lover of Israel, a true lover of the, the Jewish people, and how in the world could he be the promised Messiah if he's telling us to support with our tax money this, you know, pagan, uh, uh, Rome Gentile Roman culture and all of its ungodliness and all of its oppression that's being meted out uh, upon us. And so if he said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then immediately there was the potential to lose his popularity among the more zealous uh, Jewish uh, followers of, of him who by and large hated Uh, the Rome and hated the Roman occupation of the land if he were to say no it's not lawful to pay taxes uh, to Rome then they would have immediately made a beeline to the nearest Roman official they would have pointed him out and accused him of uh, teaching insurrection against Rome to his disciples and uh, Rome was like any other government before and after they were pretty touchy about taxes And they were really touchy about any Jewish teacher speaking to Jewish people uh, about anything that even smelt of insurrection against Rome. One of the most troublesome spots for Rome in maintaining the Roman Empire throughout its history was maintaining law and order in the region of Israel. The Jews did not want them there. And the Jews were more forceful forceful than other people in rebelling against Roman rule. So if Jesus said, no, you, we shouldn't pay taxes to Rome, then they would have run to a Roman official. Jesus would have been, promptly gotten the attention of Rome, would have been arrested. The Jews could have just simply wiped their hands and said, now we'll let Rome take care of the Jesus problem for us. Uh, we, we, he won't see the light of day uh, again. So this is how they they frame the whole thing, and they feel that they have prepared the perfect trap for Jesus. I mean, in their minds, it just cannot fail. It's win-win for them. It's lose-lose for Jesus, and uh, you can imagine how excited they are as they're coming to Him, and Man, we're going to ask him this, he's going to say one or two things, either way he loses, we've got him. I mean, then we'll head over to Starbucks. I'm not saying that terrible people hang out there, but we'll just head over and celebrate someplace, you know, with a sandwich or something afterwards. So they're really excited. Now, they're going to discover that it's very, very hard to trap God. In fact, it's an exercise in futility. One of my favorite verses about God in all the Bible, and it's found in the Psalms, is that He sees our thoughts afar off. He knows what I'm going to think in five minutes. I don't know that I'm going to be alive in five minutes, let alone what I'm going to be thinking. He knows what I'm going to think 20 days from now, two years from now. He sees our thoughts. He knows what we're going to think before we've even begun to think, to formulate those thoughts. That puts him at a tremendous advantage in any kind of a debate, and and it certainly makes attempts to trap him, again, as I said, very, very futile. It's interesting to notice that Jesus was approached not simply by the Pharisees alone or by the Herodians alone, but he is approached by a combination of the Pharisees and the disciples of the Herodians. The interesting thing about this is that these two groups held polar opposite views concerning Rome and Rome's presence in Israel. They held polar opposite views, uh, though Jewish groups, polar opposite views concerning whether Jews should pay taxes to Rome or not. The Pharisees, who hated the rule of the Romans, they didn't like the idea of paying taxes to these pagan rulers, supporting their pagan kingdom, and all of their pagan, corrupt, debauched activities. And so every time they themselves paid tax to Rome or they saw a Jew paying tax to Rome, it just reminded them that they were not a free people, and not only were they not free, but they were supporting the very nation that was keeping them oppressed. The Herodians, on the flip side of all of that, they were a group among the Jews who didn't have any problems with Rome at all. They liked the friendship with Rome. They had no problem with paying taxes to Rome. They looked at Israel under Roman rule and they said, we've never had it so good. We've never had roads like this. We've never had peace like this. You can travel during the day. You can travel during the night. There's Roman troops on it. You can travel anywhere you want. The, the nation has never been so safe. And there's never been such a a sense of of peace and stability. And so they saw many advantages uh, to Roman rule. And they were much more tolerant of Rome and even supportive of Rome than the Pharisees were. And because of this, the Pharisees really hated the Herodians. And and they saw them really as only slightly better uh, than the Romans themselves. But what they did have in common, these two groups, was a mutual concern that Jesus' popularity was becoming too great and too great at their expense. And so they unite together now in sending representatives of both groups uh, to Jesus in an attempt to make it appear that they are offering Jesus legitimate question. If just the Pharisees came, it would have a certain vibe. If just the Herodians came, it would have a certain vibe. But because both groups came to Jesus, or representatives of the group, and they were dealing with the question that kept them separated, it really would look like, to the public, that they're just wanting Jesus to weigh in on this subject that is dividing them and finally bring a solution to this division. When, in fact, they don't want anything of the sort. They just want to trap uh, Jesus. And so they're good. Their question is good, how they, uh, you know, kind of uh, set the trap and the whole deal. They're very, very good at, at, at deceit. Now, their actions are called wicked, and then Jesus calls them uh, hypocrites. Their actions are called wicked because... They're claiming to represent God, and yet the whole time they're engaged in deceit. They're not, they're, they hate Jesus, um, they have nothing but ill will toward Him, and yet they're giving the appearance that they're coming to Him, and um, they're really going to be open to anything that He says. Jesus calls them hypocrites for the same reason because, again, they're, and a hypocrite was an actor or a phony in those days. And so here they are again giving the appearance of asking a sincere question when they really weren't about the question at all. And, and they approach Him with tremendous flattery. It's interesting, verse 16, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. And again, as I said in the Scripture reading, what they were saying is, it doesn't matter who comes to you with a question. Whether they're rich, they're poor, whether they're short, they're tall, educated, uneducated, doesn't matter. Anybody that approaches you, they're going to get nothing but the truth from you. You you are not a respecter of persons. And it's one of two or three or four places in the Gospels where the enemies of Jesus came to Him and made a profession of him that was just beautiful in its truth, but it just came out of lousy hearts and and lying mouths. I mean, it's one of the greatest things that was spoken of by Jesus. You could only wish that it was said by somebody that was sincere in in saying it. Jesus' response in verses 18 through 21, it's interesting that he answers their question at all. Jesus didn't answer everybody's questions that came to him. There were times in his ministry when people would come and ask him a question, and if the question wasn't honest, he would simply, uh, not answer it, or he would answer it with a question that if they then refused to answer, then he wouldn't, he wouldn't answer their question. He would expose their, their hypocrisy in what they were doing. So, Jesus didn't feel like, boy, Everybody that asks me a question, whether they're sincere or not, I'm compelled to answer it. He didn't feel that way. So he knows this whole thing is just a whole phony baloney thing that's going on here. And yet he answers the question. And the reason that he answers the question is that he knew in those days concerning his disciples, all the way into this day in the United States of America, and maybe even more confusing for Christians in other parts of the world, there would be that wondering of, yes, what about paying taxes to a government that is sometimes corrupt and and is uh, sometimes not as clean as we want it to be. How do you weigh in on these things, Jesus? How are we to understand this and conduct ourselves in such a nation in, in, in the world? And so he answers it for our our instruction and for our benefit. He requests of them a coin. I love my Savior. He is so funny what he does and all this stuff. He's so far ahead of everybody so these religious leaders come and they are going to trap him on this thing of paying uh, taxes to Caesar and he asks them for a coin and somebody produces a coin and he's already exposing their hypocrisy before the crowd they got this big beef about Roman occupation and and Roman currency and all this kind of stuff and Jesus doesn't produce a coin for them because he doesn't evidently doesn't have a coin on him He asked them for a coin and they got pockets full of Roman coins to offer to him. So they're not too displeased. Uh, At least they don't hate Rome enough not to carry Rome's money around. And, And this, of course, would have for those that were more of the zealot side of things, they would have looked at that and they would have realized immediately what's happening here. I mean, Jesus isn't even carrying Roman money. They're carrying Roman money and they got a a beef with Him about paying taxes to Rome. So they produced the coin. They put it into His hands and then He asked them, verse 20, whose image and inscription was on the coin? And they answered, quite correctly, Caesar's. And uh, when any time a new Caesar was uh, put into office there in, in the Roman Empire, he would order all new coinage, and so he and he would order the coins where his image would be put on it, and um, uh, and then and then some kind of a description of him, usually some reference to him being divine. The Caesars considered themselves to be uh, of the gods, and so uh, the so this is what they they would do. And, uh, and so he says, whose, whose image is on, and inscription was on the coin, they said Caesar's. And Jesus responded, verse 21, render therefore to Caesar the thing, things that are Caesar's. In other words, give to Caesar what bears his image and bears his I- inscription. Give Caesar your money. And he's telling them, you shouldn't be afraid to pay their taxes to Rome and in this Jesus plainly instructed them and instructs us that government does have a rightful place and a needed place in the grand scheme of things and that a Christian can live in subjection to government and to God at the same time so you've got a clear endorsement by Jesus of the divine institution of Government And government is a divine institution. Following the flood in Noah's time, God declared that if any man shed another man's blood, his blood was to be shed uh, for that murder. And he called upon a form of government to ensure that command. And from that point on, there in the book of Genesis, you begin to see the development of government as God intended government to be uh, in, in the world so god 's a God of law and order. God is a God who does things decently in, and in order, and good government is a key to that in in many respects in this this fallen uh, world throughout the new testament we 're told as Christians that we are to be good citizens and we are to support the god given institution of government doesn 't mean we have to support every thing that government decrees or puts before us, but we should respect and support the institution of government and the need for government in in this fallen world. An example in Romans chapter 13. Let me read a couple of verses to you in this vein. Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. He's writing to Christians. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist uh, will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on a few verses later to say, for because of this... You pay taxes. And so we do all the way till May uh, each year. And so you pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Anywhere you go in the whole wide world, in any nation of the world, God intends for us as Christians to be the single best block of citizens that that nation possesses. That the government leaders would be able to look around and see where their resources are going and where money is going and who they're having to support and who they're having to build prisons for and have courtrooms for and a legal system for and law enforcement for. And then when they look around and they look and, and say, who in the world is it that we're hardly spending any money for these kind of things to look around and say, those Christians are pulling virtually nothing from us. In, in this way. And so, we're intended to be those kind of citizens as a witness to the Lord. And so, I can exercise myself, in, and we are too, in a way that even as citizens in a country, we can really bring glory uh, to, to the Lord uh, and people will recognize these people are about something you know, otherworldly here, another kingdom, and so we are the kingdom of God. Now, the one exception is this, is that if government ever comes to us as Christians and demands that we do something that is contrary to the Word of God, at that point, we esteem our heavenly citizenship more important than our earthly citizenship, and we refuse to go along uh, with with that law. Other examples from Scripture concerning our support of, of uh, this divine institution of government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter wrote, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, that's first, and then honor the king. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Therefore I exer- exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then here it is, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So, if we enjoy the benefits of government, then we have a responsibility to support that government materially with our money. If we enjoy the benefit of a standing army, to protect us from being attacked from without, if we enjoy the peace that is ours, to realize that we can't be invaded successfully by other nations that surround us around the world, that's something that government provides. And it's one of the things God intends government to provide for its citizens. Well, that requires support. If we are... Uh, reaping the benefits of law enforcement within a country to protect us, the army and the military protect us from attack from without law enforcement protects us from attack from within by our fellow citizens, that's something that government is to provide and it requires support, a court system, a legal system these uh, in order to enforce law and order in a nation roads, infrastructure, bridges all of these things if these are things that we look and say we are benefiting from these things then we shouldn't grind at having to pay taxes or to consider it an unspiritual thing and that's the point that Jesus is making it's not unspiritual to pay taxes to support these kind of of things I made no mention of health care Now notice that Jesus goes on, and I will also. He said, Render, verse 21, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that's kind of a, a phrase that has been picked up by the culture. It's uh, and sometimes people don't even know that it comes from the Bible. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And so you can see why it would be popular, certainly among government officials and those kind of things. But Jesus didn't just stop there. He went on and said, And render unto God the things that are God's. That is, just as they were to give to Caesar that which bore his image, Roman money, we are to give to God that which bears His image. And so this sets us to thinking immediately, we ask ourselves, what in the world bears the image and the inscription of God? What in the world has been created in the image of God in order that we might then identify it and give it to God? So we turn to our Bibles to try and discover What has been created in the image of God? We begin at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and in probably 40 seconds you come to it. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible declares that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Man was created in the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Image, image, image. Okay, we got it. Who and what has been created In the image of God, who and what bears the image of God uniquely in the whole world? Man. We've been created in the the, 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 image of God. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. So we ask ourselves how in the world are we created in the image of God? Is God six foot tall and 175 pounds? Is that how we were created? In the image of God? No. The Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God and that God is a triunity. He is a triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God created Adam and Eve, He created them in the image of God and that He created them an inferior trinity or triunity. Of spirit, who they and what they who, who and what they have what they have in their lives that comes from God alone, spirit, soul, which refers, refers to the intellect and the emotion, and body. And the original creation, a person's body and body appetites were not only, they were in subjection to the soul, to the intellect, to the emotion. And the intellect and the emotion and the body were all under the control and the dominion of the spirit. That's how we were created. And God has chosen to have fellowship with man in the realm of the spirit. So Father, son, holy spirit, spirit, soul, body God has chosen to have relationship with man in the realm of the spirit. That's how we were created in the image of God. God spoke to Adam and Eve. Said, listen, you can eat of all of the trees in the garden, all of them, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of that, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Very next scene. They are at the base of that tree, they partake of the forbidden fruit of that, that tree, they disobey God. And that very day they died. How did they die? Physically impossible. Our presence in this room today reveals that that's not how they died. How did they die? They died spiritually. Cut off from the very relationship that they and we were created for, a relationship with God. But it was worse than just this. Because... In their sin, not only did they die spiritually, but then their whole lives were turned upside down and each one of us are born into this world where our body and our body appetites dominate even our thinking and our emotions. And there's no spirit to keep any of it in check. Now there is only one solution to the catastrophe of this condition. And that is a spiritual birth. The only solution to a spiritual death is a spiritual birth. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 3 that unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. The whole, the world is, you know, ripped off born again. You got born again cars and you got born again rock stars and you got born again all kinds. Of, and because people don't understand what in the world it means biblically. Jesus said, unless we're born again, we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven because we don't have a relationship with God. But if a person comes to God and says, I trust in your Son as my Savior, and I give you my life now, and and want to make it yours, at that moment, God's Holy Spirit comes into that person's life and now they have capacity for relationship with God that was lost long ago in that garden, and it's available to everyone. And then once we're born again, we are able to carry the image of God, the full image of God, as a a, a trinity and and in our spirit, soul, and body in a way that we uh, never could before because the fall had reduced us to a, a, a duality. Paul put it this way in his letter to the church to Christians at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5:22 he said, "Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely." And then here it is. "And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he who calls you is faithful." who also will do it. So when Jesus declares that we are to render to God that which has God's image on it, He's referring to our lives. The totality of our lives. Our spirit, our soul, our body. Our body, our, our uh, seeing, our hearing, our speaking, our doing, our going, our energy, our strength. All of these things are to be used For God's glory and for the good of others. Our soul, our emotions, our intellect, our empathy and compassion uh, for people, our ability to understand people and where they are, all of these things are to be used for God's glory. And then our spirit, of course, that part of us that comes from the Holy Spirit being in our lives. And so specifically, what specifically? Belongs to God everything. Everything. Jesus says, everything is to be given to Him. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said, my life is all about Christ. My spirit is about Christ. My body is about Christ. My emotions are about Christ. My mind is about Christ. It all belongs to Him. It is all given to Him. It is all rendered to Him. And Jesus is saying that while we are to give our tax money to Caesar, we are never to give our lives to anyone but God. And their response? They got it. Verse 22, they left marveling. Again, the excitement they must have had as they were coming to trap Jesus. We got him. He's, if he says this, then we get then we, And if he says, oh, this is going to be so good. And in less than 30 seconds, he not only slips the trap, but he traps them. How does he do that? And for the rest of their lives, he's ruined that Roman coin for them. <laughs> Every time they pull it out of the row, they hear Jesus' teaching. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But be sure to render unto God the things that belong to God, the things that bear his image. Jesus reveals to here, us to, reveals to us here, That the greatest issue in life has nothing to do with taxes. The big issue for the Herodians, for the Pharisees, and for us is whether we are rendering our lives or giving our lives to God. Dear Christian, this morning, does God have your life 100%? Your heart, your mind, your soul? your strength? Is it fully rendered to Him? Are you still growing in your relationship with Him? Or has the relationship become one that's compartmentalized? Where He has these parts, I have these parts. We need to give Him our lives 100% you think about all of the unbelievable, I mean just priceless benefits that are ours every single day for being citizens of His kingdom. Not roads and bridges, in prisons and law enforcement and armies, as wonderful as those are in a physical sense. But think about purpose, think about meaning, think about forgiveness, think about grace, think about His faithfulness, think about an open throne to uh, approach any time in prayer, think about answered prayer, think about eating each meal as a gift from Him. Think about the peace and the security that is ours to know that heaven is as good as his word and we serve a God who cannot lie. Think about the benefits that are ours every single day as citizens of his kingdom. And what is the response that is worthy of that? Jesus said, give God your whole life. Give him everything. He deserves our all. And so may not a single one of us, as a Christian, leave this place today, head off into our cars and head on to wherever we intend to head on to after this service, without really being able to sit down and and leave this room today and be able to say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. I died a long time ago nevertheless I live and not I but Christ lives in me that's what my life is about and the life that I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and it'll just be a few minutes and there'll be a push of traffic out those other doors and it'll be great but if you sit here today and you say you know I can't I'm paying my taxes. I'm obeying that side of Jesus' commandment here. But He doesn't even remotely have my soul or my body or my spirit. And I don't want to leave this place until that's completely back in His hands. This is just a big old living room, right? It's a big old living room, but it's just a living room. And to just sit tight in our seats and say, I want to settle that with the Lord this morning. I don't just want to honor Him in paying taxes. I want to honor Him with my whole life. I want the image of God to be seen completely and as fully as it possibly can through, through my life. If you sit here today and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you came in here uh, this morning and uh, who knows what's happened to you in the last month or the last six months, or the last week. A lot can happen in a week on planet Earth. Who knows what happened last night? He said, I think I'll go to church today. I think I'll go to that one that looks like a prison from Pellendale. Because that's how guilty you feel about whatever you... I think I'll go to that one. you walk into a room like this and you say, you know, I don't know, I... They did that music and all that kind of stuff. I'm just not used to singing out loud like that, and I don't know what that's all about and everything. They seem like nice people, though. And that guy got up and gave that speech and everything, and I understood a little bit about it and everything like that. But what I, the question that's really in my mind is, if I were to ask Jesus this morning in this room, Jesus, that there's one thing that you want from me today, or you want me to know, what would that be? And I can tell you what that would be it would be that you would give your life to Him and be born again this morning by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, allowing His Holy Spirit to now come into your life and begin in you the relationship that you have been created for. Until I am engaged in the thing that I've been created for, there will always be that sense of emptiness and purposelessness and frustration. There will always be that sense, there must be something more to life than this. And until a person is born again, there is no escaping that. You can buy all of the real estate on the entire coastline of Italy. You can be a billionaire in terms of euros or dollars. You make your choice. You can watch every piece of entertainment that gets poured out of the entertainment uh, centers of the world. You can watch it. You can do it. You can snort it. You can drink it. You can do all of those things. And at the end of it, when you still got to put your head on the pillow at the end of the day, there will be this sense, I still haven't found it yet. Because what you've been created for is a relationship with God. And there will always be that sense that there must be something more until we're engaged in that because until we're engaged in that there's something more. And it is the something more. God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. And He's made it a free gift for you to receive today. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They're going to have a badge on that says "prayer," so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you and answer your questions today and give you a Bible and give you some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. It's real. This whole, there's a whole realm, a whole world, a whole reality that opens up on the other side of that decision That you haven't seen yet. And it is the thing that life is all about. And it's there for the asking. And the receiving. Bring your questions to these men and women. They care about you. And and they'll pray with you today. To begin that relationship with God. And God will be thrilled to do it. (laughs) You'll be thrilled. But He'll be thrilled to do it also. He loves you. And He wants to save you. The Bible says He has pity on you. How we beat ourselves up, what we've done to ourselves, what we've done to others before we finally come to Christ. He pities us. And so He works in our lives and He blocks this off and He does this and He saves our life here and then He does this over here and He does this all to bring us to a place like this this morning where we'll be able to make that that decision, make that decision for Christ today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.